Welcome to Correro on Sustainability, the first podcast produced by Future Proofers, a student-led sustainability club here at AUT. I am Leila, your host, and I hope you enjoy this Correro with professionals who are leading sustainable change in Aotearoa. We hope their stories bring some light to your own personal journey. We are delighted to have Chloe Swarbrick on Korero, a previous Auckland mayoral candidate and now MP for the Green Party. We are nearing the end of her first term at Parliament as the youngest politician since Marilyn Waring in 1975. She has already championed a number of issues in Parliament, including mental health, cannabis reform and climate action, and is now the third list MP for the Green Party running in the Auckland Central electorate. Today we are going to be covering the election, Green Party policies, as well as Chloe's journey into sustainability and politics. Kia ora Chloe, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. How have you been during the last few months and how have you coped with uncertainty brought about a global pandemic whilst being in a leadership role? Oh man, um, I, firstly, yeah, kia ora ihoa, kia ora ihoa maha. Um, I, don't really consider myself as being um, in a leadership position. I think that there are far better leaders that you'll find in communities and in Plano throughout the country. Um, you know, I I really find it distorted that we look at um, people who occupy positions of so-called status in our society and we go, you know, that's what we should be aiming for. I think, in fact, the best thing that you can do is contribute. Um, so anyway, I guess I hold a platform and therefore a privilege and therefore I have the opportunity to speak to you all today. Um, I have found the last few months um, fascinating, to say the least. I mm -hmm. think that we have seen um, kind of a flipping of the script on the way that a lot of people view politics. So I think yeah. a lot of people um, kind of perceive politics to be this thing that happens like out there. It's something that's done by people in suits. You know, the classic that I regularly ask people is, you know, what do you think of when you think of a politician? It's usually, right. you know, an old dude in a suit. It's not. It's not <laughs> <in their name. laughs> um, yeah. And it, you know, politics is actually just about action. It's about communities. It's about change. It is about the decisions that we make that influence the world beyond ourselves as individuals. And I think that, um, and kind of speaking to that flipping of the script, what we've seen is all of these things that we were told for so long were impossible. You know, housing of the homeless, um, you know, in investment in lifting the incomes of those who are at the lowest rungs, mm -hmm. uh, flexible working arrangements for people with disabilities or sole parents, all of those things that were technically supposedly impossible happened pretty much overnight. And I think demonstrably um, inherent in that is that ultimately we've exposed the greatest dirty secret of politics or business as usual, which is that it's literally just what you accept. You know, I um, kind of really uh, ripped the quote from uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower and made it far more relevant to um, my sector by saying that we accept the politics we think we deserve. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I genuinely think that that has never been more evident than it is right now. 
um, things can change and things can change really, really quickly. And things will always change, you know, it's a constant. So it's just ultimately about taking um, the power that all of us have, particularly in a country that's as small as Aotearoa, New Zealand, you know, we have a population the size of Melbourne. <laughs> we, we can change things real bloody quickly if we want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you did say the other day on your Facebook that COVID-19 uh, didn't uh, create a broken system, but rather it exposed it. Um, what do you think are the main faults that we see um, with regard to sustainability, environmental, social, and otherwise? Yeah, so I think, um, so firstly, um, just important to note that I nicked that. That's from yeah. Iowa Hostet, who's the um, Secretary of Education. Uh, and yeah, as you said, um, she, when was talking about the digital divide between students um, who have access to technology and those who don't, uh, and was saying that the pandemic didn't create inequity, it exposed it. And, you know, that pertains to the broader system. I think that a lot of us in our day-to-day -day end up, you know, fighting essentially for survival. Uh, and we have, I actually was reflecting not too long ago on my maiden speech, um, which is the terminology used to refer to the speech, first speech that you give in Parliament. Uh, and I was doing that because I was just reflecting on, you know, how, how on earth I want to stay in politics. It's such yeah, a yeah. Weird, weird place to exist in. Um, and was just kind of actually taking some advice from Marilyn Waring, who you alluded to at the beginning, who told me the best thing that you can do when you enter a space like this is to consistently reflect on the values that you came in with. And if those have changed, that's totally all G, just recognize that they've changed and that you've evolved. If they've changed and you're uncomfortable with that, it's time to leave. So I was reflecting on um, my maiden speech and in it, I said something along the lines of how uh, you know, we have this epidemic of mental ill health in the country, which is, you know, incredibly prevalent, and a lot of people recognize it, but we don't necessarily recognize the causes behind it. Why do we have this epidemic of mental ill health? Well, actually, if you look at the research, you know, the mental health and addiction uh, inquiry prompted by the government about two years ago, which was published last year, demonstrated that mental ill health and substance abuse and addiction fundamentally stems from the environment that people are in. And what that means is, uh, if you really drill into it, the two major determinative factors, regardless of whether you have a biological predisposition towards manifestation of mental ill health or not, your environment can either aggravate or mitigate that. So the two major factors are poverty, uh, sorry, trauma and isolation, and then poverty is another major one. So our current responses to people who are particularly experiencing um, the more stigmatized end of mental ill health or substance abuse or dependency are further stigmatized and traumatized uh, and isolated. And I think that's kind of the point that I was getting at around, um, you know, quoting Iona on that is, uh, the inequity that presently exists in our system exists primarily because all of us are told to fight each other as opposed to collaborate with each other. And that is a fundamentally unsustainable system because even if you talk about it from like an economic kind of quite market perspective, you end up with things like duplication as opposed to things like a sharing economy. Oh, uh, so I find it really, really interesting that you mentioned that you should always be reflecting on the values with which you started, I guess, a career or something like that. Um, 
And obviously, as we all know, you've had a ton of different careers across the whole spectrum. I mean, you've had your clothing line. I think you also said you managed a cafe, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, for a um, year with my former partner, Alex, who's still a really good mate of mine, um, and uh, with our friend, Brian. That, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And uh, did you find that sustainability was always a core value that you had while you were going from, you know, from career to career? And how did you implement that? It's definitely something that I have learnt and become more acclimatised to. So I reflect on, um, you know, the rangatahi who I've interacted with. Like, I feel really, really old now. I'm 25 years old, but my little brother is 13 and um, he regularly reminds me how old I am in comparison <laughs> to him. Um, and then, you know, I've worked with these um, amazing young people uh, who are, like, at the front lines of movements like School Strike for Climate, um, who are just, like, coming through the ranks. And for them, they have grown up in this world of acute awareness around issues particularly to do with climate and the intersection actually even on things like indigenous rights and poverty and social justice and that is just wild to me like I remember trying to grapple with things like feminism on Tumblr in the yeah, early yeah. 2000s so it's just been this amazing experience to uh, see how much culture has actually changed and that's another really important thing that I don't think activists and advocates do anywhere near enough is actually even though it feels like we still have so far to go we have actually achieved quite a few things and it's important to recognize that success and reflect on it because otherwise you'll just burn out and feel like nothing, no change is ever possible. Um, but the um, kind of journey through particularly business has been interesting for me because that was always about trying to find a space that particularly community could become sustainable. So kind of speaking to all of the different elements of sustainability, uh, for us, it was about trying to figure out how we could do something that was outside of taking a nine to five job that we hated. Uh, you know, I went to uni with all these people, for example, who like studied accounting and hated it. And I was like, bro, you hate studying accounting. Don't you think yeah. you're going to hate the job that you plan to do for 30 yeah. years? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's just been this way to kind of try and create something new that has its own element of sustainability. And I guess that's almost like an appendage to the so-called system. The system, by the way, a lot of people use in this amorphous, ambiguous way, but it's fundamentally just about the norms that we accept, the way that we interact with each other, which are like customs and values that we take for granted. So um, I in that process of learning about sustainability have just kind of begun to uh, engage with a lot of people who have different ways of thinking about things and that's where I've learned again about you know becoming ever uh, greener in terms of things like uh, introducing um, composting at our little mm -hmm. cafe that we ran in Mount Eden uh, but also around attempting to continually reinvest the profits or revenue that we were generating back into the community and particularly at that point in time into young local artists. Oh that's wonderful. Um, so I'm just curious about the evolution into politics and I know a lot of people are as well. So how did you decide to, um, you know, go into this field and um, what made you choose the Green Party? So this is probably like, where do we start? <laughs> so, I mean, when I, I'll just kind of give you little snapshots. Um, I fundamentally come from the starting point because I'm very earnest and it's funny because that was a critique that was used of me when I first entered parliament um, that I was super earnest, earnest being wearing my heart on my sleeve 
Uh, and I genuinely think that I'm still very earnest. They haven't knocked that out of me. And I think that's important. Like I believe in something, I give a shit and I'm willing to fight for it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that when you end up being knocked down a peg and saying, you know, I'm not willing to fight for something, I don't believe in anything, then why are you occupying the space? Right. So um, I, uh, yeah, my, my old man um, who primarily raised me, uh, I remember like writing my first um, speech in primary school and dad was always like quite a philosophical dude, but he dropped out of uni uh, out of high school at like 15. Um, and I was reading my speech and it was about something as precocious as a, you know, seven year old could write. And it was to do with the double <laughs> standards between kids and adults and about how yeah. I have a bedtime and I get told what to eat. Why don't you dad? Um, and I remember reading it out to him and just being like, this is unfair. And I didn't realize at the time, but obviously I was talking about ethics and equality. Uh, and dad kind of came back at me and offered some critique. And I was like, oh my God, my dad thinks this is awful. I'm going to go away and completely rewrite it. Yeah. And dad was like, whoa, 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 hold up for a second. Like basically what I'm teaching you right now is that it's really important to recognize that different people see the world differently. Uh, and if you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes, then you are never going to be able to actually formulate an argument, let alone change somebody's mind. So the way that dad always put it is different people see different things differently, um, which I then went to uni and did a BA in philosophy and found out there was this dude called Socrates who came up with that <laughs> thousands of years earlier um, called subjectivity. Um, but yeah, I did philosophy and became really interested in um, Frankfurt School Critical Theory, which um, kind of emanates out of uh, Germany, but uh, was propagated primarily by German Jews. So they moved to uh, New York primarily when Hitler came along. Uh, and, you know, there's a huge amount of trauma that lessens in that trauma and in the immense amount of violence that, um, you know, was witnessed. And uh, that fundamentally looks at the structures of society and whether those structures are unfair and, or unjust. And if that's the case, how you go about recalibrating them. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite philosopher is a woman who would never call herself a philosopher. She preferred being called a journalist, but her name's Hannah Arendt. Anyway, I'm sidetracking. But, uh, you know, in philosophy and, and kind of looking at structures of justice, I then was like, well, I could do my postgrad in philosophy. But, you know, I'm interested in applied philosophy. And that's when law kind of became a thing. And, you know, $43,000 worth of student later, <laughs> yep. um, I ended up with a law degree, never with the intention of being a lawyer, but because I just wanted to understand stuff. And um, while all this uh, study was happening, I was involved in a few of these different small business startups with my partner at the time, Alex. Uh, which was all about kind of experimenting with these places that in spaces that we could create uh, because it felt like young local artists in particular and all of their manifestations, whether it's music or kind of more physical and traditional art or fashion or whatever, were being pushed out and were being told they couldn't do it. So we wanted to give people that platform. Uh, and I was also working at this little radio station called 95BFM um, and I was uh, started out uh, doing the news writing at 6 a.m. because I had absolutely no experience um, in journalism uh, and then became a news reader and then became a producer of the show called The Wire and then eventually hosted the show. Uh, and I ended up interviewing politicians. And I remember just having this back and forth and being like, 
I hate this. I hate what these guys are up to. Like, why do they never want to answer a question? It's straight up just about, you know, how they can improve society. Don't they want to be held to account? Aren't they supposed to be leaders? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff was kind of bubbling up. I was also working part-time at this venue called Neck of the Woods on K Road. Uh, And I remember being really sucked in by this discussion that was happening around the closure of the King's Arms, uh, which is one of the very few small to medium sized venues in Auckland. And one of the major factors that was a catalyst for it closing down was basically poor planning regulation by Auckland Council. So this really cheap apartment block got built next to it. And of course, people started complaining because there wasn't adequate insulation. And all of a sudden, this established music venue, which had existed for decades to give young local musicians a foot in the door, the chance to build experience, gain an audience, see what works, was disappearing because of regulation, which seemed to be entirely devoid of any thought of culture (laughs) or like livelihood or why the hell people would ever live in a city. And this was all kind of percolating away as the local body elections in 2016 were coming up and I was interviewing the top four candidates for the Auckland mayoralty and um, they, none of them wanted to talk to me about that. None of them wanted to talk to me about the cost of living. None of them wanted to talk to me about art or culture. They just wanted to talk about rates and rates are like taxation for property. And that makes sense. But it, you know, you need to see it on the flip side. You need to think, why, why are we accumulating this money? What are we actually spending on it? And what kind of leadership or vision is there for what is supposedly the biggest city in the country? Mm-hmm. And um, I was getting really frustrated with it and ended up complaining to my producer, Lillian, um, who's a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, she's now actually the news director at B. And uh, she was just like, you know, Chloe, if you're going to complain about it, you have to do something about it. So I went home and I Googled how to become Auckland's mayor. Um, wow. and, <laughs> yeah, you can Google anything. Um, And I found that there were three barriers. I had to be over the age of 18. I was 22 at the time. That became kind of my defining feature, you know, to to the extent that all my mates changed my name on like Facebook chat to Chloe Swarbrick 22 in our group chat. Um, And you had to have 200 bucks. So I could pay the 200 bucks and you had to have two people nominate you. I was like, cool, sick, I can do this. Like, that's, that's all you need. That's all any joker needs. Um, let's get involved in politics. <laughs> I, I accepted from the get-go that, of course, I don't know everything. But, you know, the more I thought about it, I'd interviewed all these politicians, and they don't know everything. Anybody of whatever age who stands in front of you and tells you they know everything is either lying to you or completely lacking self-awareness. And I'm not sure which is worse. So the intention was always to go, the role of a politician is to essentially be a conduit. It's to have vision and to go, this is the kind of thing that I think that we should be creating. And you do that by talking to people in the community. And then you go about actually trying to build an action plan to manifest that through you know, consulting with experts and community leaders and people who have dedicated their lives to solving these problems. And that was another thing that just struck me is the lack of conversation around actual expertise and evidence in politics. You know, whether you're talking about climate, whether you're talking about um, social justice, whether you're talking about criminal justice, any of these issues are completely almost devoid of discussions about evidence. 
So yeah, fell down a rabbit hole, um, ended up running for the local body election. Um, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, ended up coming in third place uh, with 19 candidates, mind, um, including ahead of some guys who spent like literally tens of thousands of dollars on their campaign. We ended up fundraising, I think, just over $5,000, which was like primarily towards the end. And that was mostly through selling t-shirts that were like rip-offs of Vote for Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, after that, I was like, this is weird. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, people um, care about stuff that I'm saying. Um, and I guess I, I was really conscious of accidentally sending the message that, you know, you lose and then you disappear uh, and you let them beat you. So I was kind of committed to, after talking to a lot of people whose opinions I admire and respect, uh, to continuing and then the next question was through which vehicle did I want to do it and I looked at all of the political parties uh, websites and I went through kind of their values proposition being like their, their manifesto or their origin story or whatever uh, and I also looked at their policies and um, you know you've got the national party who kind of talk about personal responsibility and I'm like yeah cool like that that's one very small part of the picture as far as I'm concerned personal responsibility I had felt particularly my whole life is often an opportunity to excuse political responsibility like mm -hmm. at the end of the day if you are literally just individualizing every problem then there's no point in having a society what's the social contract about yeah. Um, I looked at labor and, you know, that was about like workers' rights and stuff. And it didn't seem to quite gel with the policies that they were putting out there. But also there wasn't really a recognition of the interconnectedness of all of the challenges that we were facing. Um, and then I looked at the Greens and I remember uh, <laughs> looking at their charter. Fun fact about the Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand is that our charter, um, the four core principles, are actually identical to every Green Party around the world. Wow. Um, so all Green Parties have the exact same four core charter principles. What differentiates us here in Aotearoa is that we recognise Te Tiriti o Waitangi as the founding document of this country and it therefore permeates throughout the um, four core charter principles. Um, extra fun fact is that we are also the only parliamentary party who recognise the indigenous version of the text as the legitimate version of the text, but that's a side point. Um, it's actually a really important fundamental point, but nonetheless. Uh, so the first one's ecological wisdom. Basically, you've got to recognise that resources are finite. Um, even resources that are renewable, you have to allow them space and oxygen to regenerate, otherwise they don't. So if you accept that as the premise, the next one kind of follows the path of course, and that is social responsibility. So if you accept that resources are finite, then in order to have a cohesive society that works well and doesn't descend into civil war, then effectively you need to have a good, meaningful distribution of those finite resources that you can rationalize, that you can make sense of. Uh, the third thing is nonviolence. Um, so, you know, obviously that's like, we don't like going to war. And then we believe there's far more constructive ways of resolving problems. But more so than that, it's about bringing together a diversity of viewpoints around the table so that you build sustainable solutions from the outset and you don't neglect perspectives that would otherwise be left to the last minute. Uh, and the fourth and final point is around appropriate decision making. 
So I'm a massive nerd for local government. I'm actually still our local government spokesperson. Uh, but that is about devolving decision-making powers down to the level where it affects people. Basically, it doesn't make sense for somebody in an ivory tower to make decisions about those who live in the regions. Mm. Um, and it's all about trying to figure out those ways that people can be actively involved and participating in the decisions made about their lives and their future. So it's the very long story of how I ended up in politics. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's you know, you've evidently put, in, put a lot of thought into how you see yourself um see your role as a politician um and your role for the for the government for society um and you know but it's still quite sad that um a lot of the mayoral candidates back in 2016 didn't want to speak to you do you feel that it was your age that was um that was a factor? I mean they, they were they were willing to speak to me on the radio they just didn't want to speak to me about the issues that mattered they found a way to do what politicians call pivoting and pivoting is where you basically can take a question and this is like insider but it's totally not you can read any book about politics on it and you know you take any given question and you figure out how to give the answer that you want to give so you know you can ask me a question about the weather and i can end up telling you about something else entirely <laughs> and that is the one thing that i have tried to do very differently and that i think that i've attempted to apply from my lessons back in you know independent student student radio is even though i might end up on this big rant i'm terrible at sound bites but i'll like give you the whole background or chronology of how this like issue developed i will always try and answer the question fundamentally because i think that's what people deserve from their representatives and what advice do you have to young people who want to become politically more politically active in Aotearoa, but are sort of more afraid of, you know, uh, they're, they're afraid of not being taken seriously, um, you know, because of their age and um, factors yeah. like I think I think one of the most important things is, uh, you know, that lesson, I, I regularly, regularly reflect on it. Um, so I apologize if you've heard it from me before, but it's that you know, I remember being a kid and looking at adults and going, you know, they have a clue, they know the meaning of life. Like when I grow up, I'm going to be sorted, I'm going to understand stuff. And I remember turning into a so-called adult and like moving out of home at 17 and, you know, starting uni and all of these other things. And then being like, this is it. Like, I like, oh man. And then now I'm 25. And to be honest, like I've got mates who are having kids who have no idea what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing, right? Like you grow up and you realize nobody has a clue. Everybody is just working it out, including your parents and your grandparents. And that's a really important lesson because it enables you not to cast judgment on other people finding their way through things. But it's the exact same thing with becoming a politician um, from being an average citizen is, you know, other politicians are just doing the best that they can with the resources available to them, which means, importantly, that there is actually nothing that distinguishes so-called representatives from everyday people. In fact, they should be normal. <laughs> you know, your, every, your representatives fundamentally should look and sound like you. They shouldn't be seen as, you know, these real fancy people in suits. Because when they're seen as that, they're seen as other. They're not seen as part of the collective, and that's not representative. Right. 
Um, which is why I often joke about how, you know, I'm a high school dropout who swears too much with tattoos. Like I'm not supposed <laughs> to be a representative, but you know, like here for a good time and a long time. Um, and I think that the best advice that I can give to people who are looking to be engaged politically is to start local. Um, I think that we often, particularly in, um, you know, my generation and the generations that have come after, um, noting that my little brother is part of a generation apparently called the Zoomers, um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm on the very cusp, like I was the, I was the last bit of the um, millennials, like I was born in 1994, uh, and it's that we need to not try and take on the whole world alone. <laughs> Nobody ever does anything meaningful alone. We have this tendency to look back at history and to go, oh, you know, that one person gave that real sick speech or like had that photograph doing that thing. But they weren't the one person who changed the course of history. They might have been the person leading the march or who gave the speech that was recorded. Uh, but fundamentally, if they were giving that to an empty audience, it would have meant nothing. If they were leading a march of nobody else, they just would have been walking down the street. You know, it ultimately comes down to the fact that social change, environmental change, transformative change always requires hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of regular people doing their bit to change the course of history. And you can trace that back through, you know, civil rights, through gay rights, through uh, the suffragette movement, through whatever change to history you want to look at. And you also need to recognize that none of those things were easy at the time. They seem mm -hmm. obvious now, um, but they were massively difficult. You know, we, we, we really need to reflect on that. And that's, again, why I think it's important to celebrate the wins that we do manage to get across the line. Um, and I think, yeah, the other thing which I kind of alluded to before is around starting local. Um, it is going to be really difficult to go immediately, I want to change everything about the way that the UN, the UN operates. <laughs> you need to go, um, okay, maybe if that's your end goal, uh, figure out how to break that down and to reverse engineer it and then start working on building a team around you who can help you to facilitate getting to that point, uh, figure out the skills that you need, but also build a proof of concept and do that at a really local level. Um, but also recognize as well that what is important is the change that you manage to be a part of achieving, not the status that you held in doing so. We had some people wondering about the budget that was announced last week, described by the Prime Minister as a jobs budget. And um, the Green Party has called for a billion dollar nature-based fund to reinvigorate the economy post-COVID-19. Um, how is this money going to be spent and how do you feel it will benefit the environment and New Zealanders? That is a really good question. <laughs> so, yeah, you would have seen us uh, prior to the budget being announced. Um, it's important to recognise there are two different kind of levers that we get. One is working um, in collaboration and negotiation and advocacy behind the scenes uh, and around the table with different government ministers attempting to influence outcomes. 
Another way of influencing outcomes that I think is often kind of taken for granted or not undertaken anywhere near enough is advocacy in the public space, which you can do so in a constructive way to try and build the public mandate for change. So that's effectively what we did um, prior to the budget is we're doing that work behind the scenes as well as obviously speaking about the work that we we're trying to do uh, and kind of testing how interested people were in it. And we had a massively positive response. So. What we've seen from um, this budget is, uh, you actually haven't seen all of it yet, there is more announcements to come, uh, but the kind of big ticket items that were released on budget day uh, included the $1.1 billion for nature-based jobs. So this is currently sitting in the hands of our Minister of Conservation, uh, the Green Minister, the Honourable Eugenie Sage, uh, who I have had the immense privilege of working alongside over the past three years. And I have to say that she's exactly who I want to be when I grow up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Eugenie has done, like, it's fascinating talking actually to Department of Conservation or DOC ranges uh, nowadays actually having a minister who cares <laughs> and who understands the work that they are doing um, in the ministerial position that actually influences that mahi that's occurring on the ground. So the way that those 11,000 jobs will be created is effectively through collaboration with local government, uh, with Department of Conservation, and with iwi and hapu across the country. So that is as basic and straightforward as partnering with, for example, farmers on stuff like riparian planting or on afforestation, that is planting more trees, uh, as well as obviously caring for our native flora and fauna and doing things like pest control. So um, it, it's just a really cool and exciting way to invest in nature as a form of infrastructure as opposed to building something which saps um, our planet. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, it's really interesting to hear the ideas that are going around, um, you know, especially in the post-COVID environment where, you know, no one really can predict anything, I suppose, at this stage. It's um, important to recognise as well, I think, that you know, we often talk about stuff like, uh, you know, a lot of people now are very much on the bandwagon of not taking GDP to be the sole measure of well-being or welfare, but we don't really investigate why it is that we don't do that. So yeah. just as a very short historical background, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, GDP as a concept was invented in the 1930s by this guy called Simon Kuznets, who took it to US Congress and was like, hey, here's a really cool way to measure economic transactions within the economy, but God forbid do not use it as the measure of welfare inside society, because it does not measure the quality nor the distribution of those transactions. And lo and behold, 80 years ago, uh, sorry, 80 years went on and then we're doing exactly that. Yeah. But the thing is, GDP goes up, economic transactions go up whenever a social ill occurs. That is, whenever there is a car crash, whenever somebody gets cancer, whenever there is an oil spill, whenever there is a natural disaster. The reason for that is that more economic transactions have to be undertaken in order to undo that social ill, which leads you to massive perversities like the leaked documents for... I believe it was Shell or BP off the coast of Australia, uh, in attempting to justify why they should be given a deep sea oil drilling um, kind of license, 
was saying that even if there is an oil spill, hey, you know, we'll create jobs. <laughs> and that wow. is the real problem with focusing solely on job creation for the sake of job creation or solely on growing the economy for the sake of growing the economy. If you were doing it while you were depleting the value or the quality of our kids' futures, it doesn't mean anything. You are effectively just creating more profit today while borrowing from the future. I think that's an amazing point. That's something that's never even crossed my mind before. And I mean, you know, you always hear people go, you know, but what about the economy? Um, but what is the economy? No, in all yeah. seriousness, right? Like I have done, um, I've, I've actually been undertaking just for sake of getting rid of all of the right wing rhetoric around the economy. I've actually undertaken postgraduate study in economics. And what I have found is that economics is fundamentally a social science. And my lecturer, is actually this guy called Garol, who's amazing. Um, he's this tiny man who wears really big ties. He's amazing. Um, and he, he's actually the former treasurer um, for the Reserve Bank. So he knows his stuff. Uh, and I actually asked him to define what the study of economics was and in what kind of sphere, for lack of a better term, he saw economics. You know, I was like, is this do you see it as effectively mathematics or calculus or as a science or as a social science? And he, the former Reserve Bank governor, who is now a lecturer in postgraduate economics, was speaking about how economics is fundamentally a social science. It is so laden with the value judgments of the people who are creating the policy. And I think that's why we need to actually meaningfully investigate. The economy is something that all of us create together. We have to decide what the outcomes are that we actually want with it, because otherwise we just continue to create this beast with no outcomes in mind well that's uh, that's amazing it's given me so much food for thought and i'm sure that for anyone listening it definitely gives them a lot to think about uh, well i think we've run out of time today i know you've got another meeting but thank you again so 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 much for joining us like you've been huge in my sustainability journey and it's an honor to be speaking to you tonight <laughs> It's an honor to be speaking to you. Um, I hope that all of you guys have a really lovely night and all the best with everything moving forward. Uh, I, yeah, just for anybody who is interested in getting involved in anything, don't let anybody tell you that you can't. Because, um, you know, at the end of the day, everybody who's ever done anything meaningful had someone along the way tell them they couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, you're, you're, you're a modern example of that, I suppose. It's, it's <laughs> My favorite thing is when people tell me I can't do stuff and I'm like, well, watch me. Um, <laughs> but no, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Have a lovely night. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Cordero on Sustainability. We hope that you found Chloe's sustainability journey as inspirational as we have. Just remember, if you are interested in a career in politics, all you need is $200, be over the age of 18, and have two references. Chloe has shown us that you don't need to fill a traditional idea of what it means to be a politician or a leader. As she said, you just need to represent the community that you are in. If you would like to support us, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Futureproofers AUT.